Well, good morning, everybody. This is Granny D, Dorcas Smith, feeling a little crazy because a lot of stuff is going on, and I have appointments and stuff today, so I've been sort of running around trying to get ready ahead of time. Welcome to our PR90 Body Burn Weight Management Call. We meet every week or every day, weekdays, um, in on the eastern on the eastern side of the country. It's nine forty. In the western side, it's six forty. And I'll tell you, for all of those on Pacific time, I am amazed that you get up and listen to this fabulous. And I thank you. Welcome. Glad you're here. The TR ninety program is a program that works if you follow it. And when you get to maintenance, it also works if you follow it. The food part, we all know, you know, three shakes a day, one meal, lots of water. But the big part is lots of water, sleep and exercise. You must do those things as well. And you also have to eat a relatively decent diet. But if you want to go on a vacation because it's Thanksgiving, do it and enjoy it. And then move on. I just can tell you that when I started with the TR90 program, I had a fat percentage of over 30 and I had muscles of 25%. Now it's the other way around. I have muscles of 31% and a fat of between 24 and 25%, which is awesome. And that's what I wanted. So I've done it. It's not going to happen in six months. It probably won't happen in a year, but you will, if you stay with this program, work very, very well for you, and it will help you be healthy. All right, so last week I was talking about short-term memory, and we talked about, and I'm reading from Brain Rules, John Medina, 12 Principles for Surviving and Thriving at Work, Home, and School. And he's a pretty interesting man. And my interest is always the brain. So Herman Ebbinghaus was born in 1850. As a young man, he looked like a cross between Santa Claus and John Lennon with his bushy brown beard and round glasses. He is most famous for uncovering one of the most depressing facts of all education. People forget 90% of what they learn within 30 days in the classroom. He further showed that the majority of this forgetting occurs within the first few hours of the class. This has been robustly confirmed in modern times. However, if you move and you get the body involved and you are... um, active in learning, it improves it significantly. But if you're just sitting and listening, that's where the information gets lost really fast. So if you can get active with your learning, especially with your kids, it will stay better. And remember, repeat. Remember to repeat and repeat to remember. So if you want kids to remember stuff, get them to repeat it regularly. You too. Ebbinghaus designed a series of experimental protocols in which a toddler with, with which a toddler might feel at ease. He made up a list of nonsense words, about 2,300 of them, each word consisting only of three letters, 
a consonant vowel consonant construction that had no meaning, such as taz, T-A-Z, lef, L-E-F, ren, R-E-N, zug, Z-U-G, those kind of combinations, consonant, vowel, consonant. And then he spent the rest of his life trying to memorize lists of these words in various combinations and of various lengths. With the tenacity of a Prussian infantryman, for, for which he was for a short time, Ebbinghaus recorded over 30, recorded this, his, his repetitions and his experiments for over 30 years, both his successes and his failures. He had covered many important things about human learning during this journey. He showed that memories have different lifespans. Some memories hang around only for a few minutes and then poof, they've vanished. Others persist for days or months or even a lifetime. He also showed that one could increase the lifespan of a memory by simply repeating the information in timed increments in timed intervals. Let me say that again. He also showed that one could increase the lifespan of a memory simply by repeating the information in timed intervals. The more repetition cycles a given memory experienced, the more likely it was to persist in his mind. We now know that the space between repetitions is critical. Or we now know that the space repetitions is the critical component for transforming a temporary memory into a more persistent one. Spaced learning is greatly superior to mass learning. And actually, um, that is why if you look at the curriculum, I know especially in Michigan, there's a rotating curriculum so that information comes, keeps coming around and around and around at a slightly more sophisticated level. And that's what helps to make it stick. Ebbinghaus's work was foundational. It was also incomplete. It did not, for example, separate the notion of memory from retrieval, the difference between learning something and recalling it later. Now, go ahead and try to remember your social security number. Easy enough. Your retrieval commands might include things like visualizing the last time you saw the card or remembering the last time you wrote down the number. Now, try to remember how to ride a bike. Easy enough. Hardly. You do not call up a protocol list detailing where you put your foot, foot or how you create the correct angle for your back and where your thumbs are supposed to be. The contrast proves an interesting point, that one does not recall how to ride a bike in the same way that one recalls nine numbers in a certain order. The ability to ride a bike is quite independent from any conscious recollection of the skill. You are, completely, you are consciously aware when you are remembering your social security number, but not when riding a bike. Do you, need to, do you need to have a conscious awareness in order to experience a memory? Or is there more than one type of memory? The answer seems clear, clearer as more data. The answer seemed clearer as more data came in. The answer to the first question was no. And what's that? Do you need to have a conscious awareness in order to experience a memory? No. 
which then answers the second question. Is there, more one is there more than one type of memory? Yes. There are at least two types of memories. Memories that involve conscious awareness and memories that don't. This awareness distinction gradually morphed into the idea that there were memories you could declare and that they, there were memories you could not declare. Declarative memories are those that, you, that can be experienced in our conscious awareness, such as, this shirt is green, Jupiter is a planet, or even a list of words. But, but non-declarative memories are those that cannot be experienced in our conscious awareness, such as motor skills, such as the motor skills necessary to ride a bike. This does not explain everything about human memory. It does not even explain everything about declarative memory. But the rigor of Ebbinghaus, but the rigor of Ebbinghaus gave future scientists their first real shot at mapping behavior onto a living brain. Then, a nine-year-old boy was knocked off his bicycle, forever changing the way brain scientists thought about memory. So, where do memories go? In this accident, H.M. suffered a severe, head, a severe head injury that left him with epileptic seizures. The seizures got worse with age, eventually culminating in one major seizure and 10 blackout periods every seven days. By his late 20s, H.M. Was, was essentially dysfunctional, of potential great harm to himself and in need of drastic medical intervention. The desperate family turned to a famed neurosurgeon named William Scoville, S-C-O-V-I-L-L-E, who decided the problem lay within the brain's temporal lobe, the brain region which is roughly located behind your ears. Scoville exercised the, excised the inner surface of the lobe on both sides of the brain. The, experimentally, the, the experimental surgery greatly helped the epilepsy. It also left H.M. with a catastrophic memory loss. Since the day of the surgery was completed in 1953, H.M. was unable to convert a new short-term memory into a long-term memory. He could meet you once and then an hour or two later meet you again with absolutely no recall of the first visit. He had lost the conversion ability Ebbinghaus so clearly described in his research more than 50 years before. Even more dramatically, H.M. could no longer recognize his own face in the mirror. Why? As his face aged, some of his physical features changed. But unlike the rest of us, H.M. could not take this new information and convert it into a long-term form, which left him more or less permanently locked into a single idea about his appearance. When he looked into the mirror and did not see a single idea, he could not identify whom the, in the image actually belonged to. As horrible as that was for H.M., it is an enormous value to the research community because researchers knew precisely what had taken, what was taken from the brain. It was easy to map which brain regions controlled the Ebbinghaus behaviors. 
A great deal of credit for this work belongs to Brenda Milner, M-I-L-N-E-R, a psychologist who spent more than 40 years studying HM and laid the groundwork for much of our understanding about the nerves behind memory. Let's review for a moment the biology of the brain. You recall the cortex, the wafer-thin layer of neural tissue that is about, about the size of a baby blanket when unfurled. It is composed of six discrete layers of cells. It's a busy place. Those cells process signals originating from many parts of the body, including those lassoed by your sense organs. They also help create stable memories, and that's where HM's unfortunate experience became so valuable. Some of HM's cortex was left perfectly intact. Other regions, such as his temporal lobe, sustained heavy damage. It was a gruesome but ideal opportunity for studying how human memory is formed. This baby blanket doesn't just lay on top of the brain, of course, as if the blanket were capable of growing complex sticky root systems. The cortex adheres to the deeper structures of the brain by a hopelessly incomprehensible thicket of neural connections. One of the most important destinations of these connections is the hippocampus, which is parked near the center of your brain. One in each hemisphere, the hippocampus is specifically involved in converting short-term information into long-term memory forms. As you might suspect, it is the very region HM lost during his surgery. The anatomical relationship between the hippocampus and the cortex has helped 21st century scientists further define the two types of memory. Declarative memory is any conscious memory system that is altered by when the hippocampus and various surrounding regions become damaged. Non-declarative memory is defined as those unconscious memory systems that are not altered or at least not greatly altered when the hippocampus and surrounding regions are damaged. So as I go in the future, he's, we're going to focus on declarative memory, which is a very important and vital part of our daily activities. And I'm going to stop right there because I'm past time. Thank you very much for listening today. This is Granny D. Dorcas Smith out of Plymouth, Michigan. I'd like to thank Brian Curry for his dedicated recording work for Frank Lomas for doing the recording on SoundCloud. And I'd like to remind you that in at 10 o'clock on Facebook Live, there is a session on how to become a better distributor with NewSkin. All right, here we go.